Emmy Award-winning John Mulaney presents Everybody's in L.A., a special run of six live episodes created by and starring Mulaney that'll stream live on Netflix during the Netflix is a Joke Fest. The comically unconventional show will feature special guests where John Mulaney explores the city of Los Angeles during a week when every funny person is in it. Watch John Mulaney Presents Everybody's in L.A., debuting May 3rd live at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, only on Netflix. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at tmobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at tmobile.com. Hi, everybody. It's Andy Richter, and you're listening to The Three Questions. Today, I'm talking to Steve Albini. He is a legendary punk, a proud Chicago resident, audio engineer, and although he hates this phrase, he's a record producer. By his own estimate, he's worked on several thousand albums including records by Nirvana, The Pixies, PJ Harvey, The Breeders, Cheap Trick. And as a musician, Steve was a member of the very influential band Big Black and currently records and performs with his band Shellac. He's speaking to us from his electric audio recording studio in Chicago. Here's my conversation with Steve Albini. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm going to say good morning because it's morning. It's uh, we're at you know seven a.m. ish here, and I am talking to the very busy uh, Mr. Steve Albini. Uh, you know, current Chicagoan. I'm a former Chicagoan, and you you stayed. You yeah. never left. Yeah, it's the best city in the world, honestly. Like all for, yeah. You know, if you if you rank everything on a you know on a scale. And then you just take the aggregate score. Chicago's the best city there's ever been. You know, you can do more stuff here. There's more interesting people here. You know, if you're doing anything like creative with your life where you have to involve other people and things like, you know, fabrication or construction or electronics or, or shipping or like any of those things, Chicago's just infinitely more convenient than any other place. The arts and music community here is unparalleled it's it's you know I, I really do feel incredibly lucky that my random choice of a university put me here you know yeah because you went to northwestern correct i went to northwestern to study journalism technically i have i'm a degreed journalist we got to get to like that career change um, <laughs> you know um but uh what is uh, did you fall in love with Chicago right away when you got there? When I came to Chicago, I had spent the previous 10 or 12 years of my life in Missoula, Montana, which is a physically and aesthetically beautiful place, natural wonder all around you. But culturally, I, I felt kind of stifled there. Yeah. Because, you know, in a pre-internet era, you're sort of limited to the culture that is brought to you wherever you happen to be. And so yeah. when I came here and like, you know, was immediately in the company of artists and bohemians and radicals and queer people and musicians and artists of all kinds. It was, it was just such an exhilarating thing 
Yeah. That I was just intoxicated from the first. And probably people of color too. I bet you there's not a lot of. The, I mean, the incredible amount of diversity in Chicago is sort of mirrored or is sort of echoed in all all of the little, in, in the little scenes, like the music scene and the arts community and stuff is way more diverse here than it it is in places where it's just like the local community theater and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was a, a real eye-opening experience for me and it was a gradual, um, a appreciation of everything that all of that brought to the table. But, in, but the, sh- the, the change was noticeable instantly and it, it, it was intoxicating. That's the only way to put it is like, I was just dizzied by all of this crazy stuff. Yeah. And then, but I mean, I imagine then, you know, from that point, you go to college at Northwestern and you start playing in bands and you start touring and you start seeing the world. When you go to New York, aren't you kind of like, oh, this is, this is Chicago, but even more, you know, this is a more concentrated. I always kind of hated New York. I mean, I didn't hate it. Like it was obviously a serious place where a lot of things happen, but there was stuff about it that just seemed so um awkwardly constructed you know like yes you can to you can go to the bodega 24 hours a day so like yes you can get like an off-brand soda at all nights uh, you know at all times of the night that's charming you know there there are things about it that are nice and cool but there are also things about it that just seemed like like antithetical to human hospitality or human habitation like the way they pile garbage up on the streets as yeah. just like, you know, there's no alleys. Like, why don't they yeah. have alleys? They could have built the city. We could have built alleys, you know, yeah. but they didn't. So they just, so everybody has to pile their garbage on the sidewalk. It's just, it's just a very dumb way to, to function. And the, yeah. there's a the thing that I noticed when I, when I went to Northwestern, my, my degree is in journalism, but my minors in the, in the Medill school of journalism, they have a very aggressive well-rounding program as part of your degree you have to do a lot of other things to get a degree in general so you have to have a a technical minor and you have to have a a social sciences minor um my technical minor was chemistry my social sciences or uh, humanities or social sciences minor and my humanities minor was painting so my painting advisor was a guy named Ed Paschke, who is a, a famous oh, um, yeah. painter from Chicago, who was part of part of the Harry Who experimental movement in the '60s, and really inspirational character. And I I learned a lot from him, and we became friends. and And he described this thing that I hadn't recognized um, until he explained it to me, and it was that um, there are places that have been sort of ordained as cultural centers, like New York and Los Angeles, right? And all over the world, there are people who are not quite good enough to get noticed on their own merits, but they have an ego that presumes that they should be getting noticed. Mm -hmm. And they resolve that conflict by saying, well, it's just because I'm in Iowa. If I wasn't in Iowa, Uh people would get me. So I'm going to move to New York where people will get me. Right. And so New York has this in, it's this, this attractor for people whose, uh, whose ego slightly outstrips their actual ability or their actual value and whatever their field is. 
And so there are all of these people who uh, Ed Paschke described them as the runners up of the whole world. Um, uh, uh, all of these people congregating in New York, the wannabes, every one of them with a chip on their shoulder, like beleaguered, like if only I had had some breaks, I could be somebody by now, but here I am, uh, you know, working in a fucking coffee shop. Right. Yeah. Like everybody yeah, yeah. has this chip on their shoulder. So, uh, uh, that, that functions in two ways. Uh, and, and, and on one level it's atrocious because there's all of this pain and all of this frustration around you all the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and frankly, a lot of really unchecked egos are around you all the time in New York. Yeah. But the good thing about it is that everybody there has ambition and everybody there is cultivating something in their life that is really important to them. That is a creative or, uh, an expressive thing. So there are a lot of people in New York who are, you know, on the sly artists or poets or musicians or sculptors or whatever, just, you know, bon vivants of some kind. Right. Mm -hmm. And you do get that, that sort of bohemian, um, sort of second layer of culture is really readily apparent when you're there. And so you are, you do get introduced to a lot of people who are doing music projects and art projects. And in your world, I'm assuming a lot of experimental theater or writing and comedy and that sort of stuff in New uh -huh. York, that's invigorating, but there is this veneer of frustration above all of it. Like that everybody had to move there from, you know, Winnetka or whatever in order to, yeah. to get someplace. And what I liked about Chicago was that in every venue, like in every, every discipline, Chicago arts are completely self-satisfied. Like the people who are in music in Chicago are content in Chicago. The people who yeah. are doing comedy or theater, like there, there is a list of people I'm sure you're familiar with from the improv and comedy scene in Chicago who have been offered a leg up into the, the larger culture, like offered Saturday night live, for example, and just fucking turned it down. Just we're like, yeah, yeah I'm going to do that, which is unfathomable to these, you know, to the, the Denton, Texas, or, you know, Oklahoma yeah. city version of that person who feels frustrated at being in a non like culture center and not being appreciated. Like those people would fight a room full of people to get that opportunity and take yes. But people in Chicago are like, you know what? Actually, it's pretty good here. I don't really, I don't, yeah. you know, I, I don't need to go anywhere else or do anything else. John Belushi said what he liked about Chicago was that on the, you know, there's New York and LA. And he said that it always seemed to him when he first started going to either, either of those places that everybody in those places wanted to get to the other one, that the people in <laughs> LA felt somehow inferior and that they wanted to get to the kind of the gritty reality of New York and that the people in New York wanted to be in sunny LA experiencing the life of a, of a star and that people in Chicago are just happy being right there. It holds up somewhat, but then there's, you know, because like when you say people in my line of work, that are there and that have quit things like the ones that I know, the ones that I know that are still in Chicago, uh, that are like the town, you know, like really talented people. Like the one that I can think of is like Dave Pesquese, who you yeah. probably know. Sure, sure. 
but who was able to stay there and had, you know, did McDonald's voiceovers for a bazillion years. Yeah. So everybody that knows him is like, well, yeah, sure. You know, he didn't need to go anywhere. He's got a recording studio in his nice house that he paid for, you know? Yeah. Because ultimately I mean- the realities of earning a living and especially with my business, which is like, even, you know, want to talk about egos, you know, like <laughs> the egos in a punk band are nothing compared to one improviser, you know, I the thing that I thought, the thing that I, that blows my mind about the people in the comedy world is that they are uh, on the sly, the most bitter, vindictive people. Like I'm the, nodding the, for when, people at when, home. When they see someone else get an achievement that they coveted, it burns a hole in them deeper than any other failure in their own life. Like they could have blown it and it wouldn't be worse than that guy that they think is not quite as funny as them get it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Cause I, and I experienced it. I started, you know, when I started doing improv in Chicago and I had a couple friends that got on SNL and my first thought was, God damn it, (laughs) motherfucker. Yeah. And, and, and over time I realized that is, kind of natural especially when you're young you to have that kind of ambition and want to strive for to be as big as you can in this thing you know in this thing that's already just drenched in ego you know like everything both what you and i started doing was we want to get on stage and have everyone in a room shut up and look at us and and listen to us. They can't, they're not supposed to talk. They're not, in fact, all the lights will be on us even. The rest of the room will be dark and they got to look at us because it's worth it to look at us. That's a, that's a motivation that comes much more from the theater side and the comedy yes. performing side than the musical performing side. Because in my world, there are equal numbers of people who are absolutely happy doing it in their bedroom alone after work and, and, uh, you know, only being noticed by accident, you know, yeah. it, there, there isn't the kind of, there, it, there is a tier of people who are in music for celebrity or for yeah. notoriety and, but they're obvious, right. And yeah. that's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who are driven to make music and who were, you know, and it's, it's the, the thing that, that struck me when I hit Chicago was that I would go to a show and it would be in a completely makeshift environment, like somebody's loft or uh, like a, a repurposed back room in a gay bar or something like it would be. Or a backyard. Yeah. It would be like a completely put together ad hoc environment. And all, all the people doing the work, all the people like humping the PA in and running the cables around and taking tickets and we're like, all of those people were the same people that were in the bands and were the same people that were, that you'd see, you know, hanging flyers on the L station and were, were the same people that you would, you know, if you needed a bass amp, you would borrow a bass amp from them uh, or the same people who would like offer you a practice space. If you didn't have a spot for your band to rehearse in, like it was, everybody was doing everything and yeah. it clearly was not a, a scenario where there was a, 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 a pre-established venue that drew an audience and performers in front of the audience. Like that was absolutely not what was happening. And so it completely broke my conception of performance and of like the, the value of art and the, the rationale for doing it. And it made me realize that 
the, the people were doing it because it, they were driven to do it and they were doing it in front of other people like them. And they were doing yeah. it with the cooperation and assistance of other people like them. It was a, you know, it was an entire circle of people, every single one of them wanting to have an amazing event, wanting to have an experience. And so it was a collaborative effort, no matter what was happening. And that, mm -hmm. that, that is an enormous distinction between the, you know, a stand-up comic who just shows up for the open mic because the open night was mic was running anyway. And he, yeah. you know, wants to dominate the room and be the breakout star or whatever. Like that's a completely different paradigm it has nothing to do yeah. with that. There is some, I've noticed some parallel in the experimental theater community, you know, like people doing living room plays and things like that, like where it's done on a very small scale and it's, you know, uh, an insular community of people who are sort of in the know, it's not really meant for the general public. Like I see some parallels there, but more what it seems like to me is it seems like, like rent parties. It seems like, yeah. like inviting people over to have an event and in the process you generate some money and that allows you to do it again. But it, yeah. it's not, it, it's not part of the show business ladder where you do this and then you do this and then you do this and you do this and you get bigger and more famous and more wealthy as you move up the ladder. It, it's not, it, it's a completely separate thing. It's not part of that spectrum at all. Yeah. That's what, that's what drew me into the music scene in Chicago. And I've, and I've, you know, it formed me as a person, like I based all of my working principles on this idea that we're all in it together. We're all trying to have a great show, you know? Yeah. I, I can't remember. I think it was Patty Chayefsky, the screenwriter. So I remember reading a quote of his that said something like, it's an entirely valid drive or motivation when you are young to be rich and famous. When you're young, <laughs> Be rich and famous, you know, that notion to get you through just sort of like the initial shit of, of trying to do something creative with your life. But he said, but you got to throw that away after a while. You can't, that can't be your motivator after a while. And I, you know, as I get older, I try and, I mean, I never was like a giant, you know, I never had like huge ambitions anyway. Uh, I, I don't have the attention span for it mainly, <laughs> uh, but you know, I do try and think like, well, just, you know, to have a happy, fulfilled life towards the end of it, uh, is really what I'm looking for. But I often reflect on that and say, well, yeah, you, but you've been on TV 30 years. It's easy to say, oh, I'm satisfied just doing good work. And I, it's like, yeah, because I got to enjoy the success that most people setting out on this sort of path that they, that they're looking for. So it's easy. You know what I mean? So that's a, that's a, that's a, a kind of a phrase. It's easy for you to say like that, that's a kind of a disqualifier that's used by critical people. Yeah. Whenever they disagree with your premise, they can find a reason to say, well, your worldview doesn't apply to you. It, yeah, they negate your validity. Yeah, there's always a way to do that, and I, I mean, I think this is an important point because it because it's used to frustrate people with contrarian opinions or or people with counter-industrial or counter-commercial inclinations. You know, like oh, it, it's easy for you to say that you don't care about uh, success, material success. 
because you have this big recording studio that you've built and you have been in successful bands. It's easy for you to say that you don't have, care about the success. How the fuck do you think I got those things? Yeah. You think I got those things by pandering to the notion of success? You think that, you know, play, playing in, in bands that made obscene and horrible music, you think that that, <laughs> that, that was done uh, as a, as a, as a way to aggregate an audience. Yeah. Do you think that me like literally declining to accept millions of dollars of compensation? Do you think that was done as a way to accrue wealth? Like mm -hmm. it was just, if you are successful doing things in a manner that is true to your principles, but that deny conventional capitalist notions or conventional show business notions, right? If you're successful doing that, you won't be allowed to be seen as an example of something that yeah. can be it. That you will be, you will, you will, if you say, yeah, people say to be successful, you have to pander and you have to do all of these things and you have to participate in this corporate and capitalistic structure. You know, that's just the cost of business. You, you just have to do it. And then you say, well, I didn't do that. And things worked out fine for me. Then instead of that, obviously puncturing and invalidating that prior argument, then, then the disqualifying statement is, well, it's easy for you to say you, you, you did it, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I, I think that's, it's such a childish mode of argument that, um, that I think it's, it's important to, to lay out the fallaciousness of it. Because it's, it's, it's trivially easy to say, oh, well, you being successful, following your own uh, advice, that's meaningless for someone yeah. else who might follow your advice because they won't be successful doing it. And I know because people aren't successful doing that. And then you say, I was successful doing that. And they say, well, you don't count. I'm what I mean is all of the other <laughs> fictional people in my head who haven't done the thing that you say that you did and yeah, of them yeah. were successful in my head. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Hi, I'm John Lovett, host of Love It or Leave It. Every week, I'm joined live on stage by incredible guests to break down the biggest and dumbest stories in politics and pop culture. And now, because there's too much news for just one show, join me and my friends, also known as beloved producers who have to be there, every Tuesday for a rundown of the latest headlines to help get you through another flawless week in our perfect society. Listen to episodes of Love It or Leave It wherever you get your podcasts, or catch the funniest moments on the Love It or Leave It YouTube channel. I'm Phoebe Judge, host of the podcast, This Is Love. Stories about love and all of the surprising forms it can take. Like a man who finds a baby on a subway platform. A woman who spends most of her time alone until a fox starts coming around. 
And in one of my favorite episodes, we meet a man who forgot his wife and had to get to know her and fall in love all over again. Listen to new episodes of This Is Love wherever you get your podcasts. Can't you tell my love's a grow? Let's go back, um, Amy, because, you know, this podcast likes to go back to, you know, your starts. Um, I mean, did you grow up feeling weird in Missoula, Montana? Yeah, I, I think everyone, everyone, when they start recognizing them themselves and they start differentiating themselves from their peers and from the people around them, to a, a certain degree, they feel some alienation of those people. Yeah. I can think of one person on my life that I know who never felt a moment of alienation. There's a, a, a musician named Brett Rout from Louisville, Kentucky. And um, I was talking to him one time and he said, you know, everybody I knew had a terrible time in high school and they felt like outsiders. I fit in everywhere. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Must be nice. He's the only person I know. Everybody else I know felt like a weirdo. Like you fucking prom king and the captain of the football squad and you know the you know the shift manager at uh pizza hut or whatever you know it doesn't matter who it is in your local hierarchy like the top dog they feel a little weird and uncomfortable and unsettled and and unwelcome you know you are talking to yorkville high school's 1984 prom king who felt what were like Three people in your class? You motherfucker. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, but I will say that uh, there were, if you were on the homecoming court in fall, uh, you were disqualified from being on the, on the prom court. So I like to think of it as I was the sixth most popular person uh, because the first five were already picked in the fall. Um, but yeah, but no, I mean, I, I was popular. And, uh, and I felt like I didn't even know what was, I didn't know what was wrong by the time that I was getting ready to, to leave Yorkville, Illinois. I did not understand how miserable I was. I had friends and I was like, what the fuck is going on? I got to the city and I was like, oh, that's what it was. <laughs> I just, I needed to move to the city and oh, okay. You know, and it's the same, it's a similar thing to what you said, just and I mean, it's it's a word that's been that's been dragged through all kinds of nonsense to make it an awful word. But diversity, like diversity, yeah. like just being around. I you know you mentioned Montana as being a kind of a monoculture, and it is definitely like it's it's primarily yeah. white. It's prim, you know there's it's primary it's a conservative, somewhat religious, but very libertarian minded uh, place, right? Yeah, within Montana, the diversity is—it's a narrower spectrum of diversity. There's not a lot of minorities in Montana. Uh, there's Native Americans, and Native Americans are getting much more of a voice now in social life and in in policy and politics in Montana than they used to. They used to be completely marginalized, uh, and that's that paradigm is shifting very slowly. Um, there, but there was an intellectual community. Yeah, in Missoula, uh, there it was a college town, so there there was uh, a thread of lefty politics. There was, like, for example, there was a in the, there was a progressive political party that was founded in Missoula called the New Party that for a while controlled the city council. Um, mm. There was a thriving arts and literature community there. 
And today, Missoula, the town I'm from, is represented in the state legislature by Zoe Zephyr, who's a trans woman. Oh, that's and, right. And, you yeah. know, that kind of thing would have been inconceivable, uh, you know, during my tenure there. But yeah. now that's the course. That's what that's what Missoula is like. Missoula is a, a, a fairly open minded place. Yeah. Has always had that that a threat of, of progressivism. And largely due to the influence of the university and the fact that the university was an aggregator for people from outside sure. the, the culture of ranching, farming, local business, which is what Missoula was otherwise. Anyway, so th- I personally, I feel like Midwestern suburbs are more of a mono- monoculture than Missoula. Than Missoula was. Yeah, you're right. Having met a bunch of people from the Midwestern suburbs where everyone that they went to school with everyone within their can as, as they've walked out their front door lived essentially the same kind of life as them and looked exactly like them like that to me is a rougher go that's a bigger transition i'm assuming that's what it was like for you yes uh, um that that's a that's a bigger shock being dropped into a, a melting pot like chicago than it was for me i because i i was already predisposed be somewhat open-minded about what other people were like, you know? Yeah. Well, your dad, um, I, I, I've never seen these two, a wild, a wildfire researcher. Yeah. So my dad was a genius, like uncategorically, un- like unqualified. He was a genius. He yeah. had multiple degrees from Caltech. He was an aeronautical engineer at first and he worked in aerodynamics and literally designed missiles and guidance mm. systems for missiles and and thus your birth in pasadena thus your birth in pasadena yeah. i assume yeah there were a bunch of aerospace companies in california at the time and that's and he worked for hughes aircraft and he worked for um, a company called general research corporation and another company called electrodyne maybe i can't remember mm-hmm. I, I honestly don't remember what the, name of the other all companies st- all those company names sound so evil now can't. general yeah. research corp it's like oh we yeah. make poisons that make your brain melt <laughs> yeah. um and so he and he you know he was an uh, he was a brilliant engineer and he would 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 regularly be sort of headhunted for projects specific projects by other engineering firms and eventually worked his way up to where he was working for defense contractors who had the biggest contracts like they had the most money to, to burn and so they were hiring all the big brains and he was working on missile systems and, but he was always an outdoorsman. He always loved fishing and hunting and, and being out, outdoors. He grew up in the central Valley of California and he spent a lot of his time outdoors. He rode motorcycles when he was younger. Like he was kind of a grease monkey and, you know, liked to work with his hands, liked to be outdoors, liked hunting and fishing. And he kind of fantasized about some way that he could resolve his technical bent, like the, the way his mind worked, solving really difficult engineering and math problems, but somehow applying that to the natural world so he could be out in the mountains hunting and fishing and stuff. And this opportunity came up with the Northern Forest Fire Research Laboratory in Missoula for him to go and stu- and essentially start working on the science of forest fires. Like there had been very, very little research uh, done to sort of codify the behavior of forest fires as distinct from other kinds of burning things. Mm-hmm. Forest fires are massive systems. 
like huge fires create their own weather, you know, yeah. and propagate themselves. Like as the fire gets bigger, it creates its own internal fire tornadoes, which then yank burning trees out of the ground and fling them tens of miles, you know, yeah. to sort of propagate the fire. Like the behavior of forest fires is insane. Yeah. And it's such a complex problem. It was perfectly suited to my father. My father was like, he wanted the hardest problem. He wanted the thing that seemed completely impossible. That's what he wanted to work on. Yeah. And he became an extremely um, well-respected scientist in the field. He's, you know, published a lot. He went to a lot of international conferences. He was allowed to travel to Russia pre-perestroika to wow. work with their interior ministry on the problem of forest fires. Um, he brought Russian scientists to the U.S. Um, to work with the forest fire research station in Missoula and to work with the larger forest fire science community. Like he, he was kind of a big shot in that world as, you know, it's a very small world, but it, it had, and it had a few geniuses involved and he was one of them. Did he and your mom encourage a sort of, well, contrarian, independent kind of bent in you? Uh, I'm going to say no, but also they weren't judgmental about how odd their children were. Like mm. my, my brother made motorcycles, built motorcycles and raced motorcycles. My sister was kind of a, a, a savant for languages. Like she mm -hmm. learned languages in high school. By the time she got to college, she was, she could speak a half a dozen languages. Wow. Like, and we were all kind of nerds and weirdos and introverts. My sister was more, she was way more popular than my brother and I were like, she was much more of a social person than yeah. we were. My brother and I were like, we were nerds. We were like straight up nerds. And what were you a nerd for? If he had, you know, she had language, he had, was it always music? Uh, no, like I went before I found music, I was really into writing. I wrote like short fiction. Um, I was on the school newspaper. I was on the school yearbook. I drew cartoons, uh, journalist. You know, yeah. That's, I kind you know, of on to journalism school. Yeah. Like I, I did have a few early heroes at, as a teenager, people like ring Lardner and, um, HL Mencken and, and Ambrose Bierce, like people who were um, who used language in a way that was engaging. Uh, but, uh, but then I also like, um, through like learning about journalism as a practice, I, like, I really, I, I became very fond of the muckrakers, you know, the early 20th mm -hmm. century people ins inspired by the early progressive movement. Upton um, Sinclair and all Upton of them. Upton Sinclair, Ida Wells, like the, the people like that, like that whole, like the polit politicization of information and, and knowledge of the behavior of the corporate world and capitalism broadly written like that, that intrigued me. And, and then Watergate happened, you know, like, and learning about the way the Watergate scandal was broken, made the Washington post investigative writers like kind of heroes of ours as well. And yeah. And like I say ours, cause it was like a small group of us, like journalism dorks at, at the high school and school newspaper people tend to be an insular crowd as well. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't fully formed as a person, but I could see, but the way my mind worked was like kind of hungry for information, respecting people who held other people and themselves accountable and people who were after a deeper meaning beyond the superficial. And that was in 
in in parallel with an indulgence that I felt like of just being a goofball. Like my friends and I were goofy and irreverent and uh and I I liked trash culture. Like I, I had Fangoria magazine and um all of those like like you know comic books and trash culture kind of appealed to me just on a base level because it was amusing. And when I just, when I found the Ramones, I, I felt like there was this weird pairing of, of the, the goofy irreverent side of my personality, but also the slightly perverse outsider. I'm, I'm a weirdo kind of thing that was going on at the same time. And the deeper I got into their music and punk rock as a, as a thing, the more I felt like, oh, that's obviously where I, where I belong. That's obviously my frame of mind. I need to, when I, when I leave town to go to college, I'm, I, I should find a place that has a cool music scene. And, and at what point you head off to Northwestern, which is a fantastic journalism school. I mean, you know, you're in like one of the best places in the country to learn journalism. When does, when does music grab you? Like, when does, when do, when do you realize, because and also, I mean, you know, a lot of your music is, it's anti-establishment, you know, um, it's, you know, it's very confront, you know, it's very confrontational. I mean, some, you know, you, and, and you've apologized for it, but, you know, like a band called Rape Man, you know, like in your face, I'm going to offend you. I'm going to challenge you. When does it, when, I mean, so I, I, obviously there's this kind of journalistic bent. There's this like, undoing lies and opening eyes kind of bent, but you didn't go work for the Washington post. You yeah. started big black, you know, I mean, how, do, yeah, I, how does that happen? So contemporaneous with me being in school, I was in bands and I, I was playing music and getting deeper involved in the music scene in Chicago while I was in college. And, um, so, and part of my, part of my degree at Northwestern, was that I had to go and work on a small daily newspaper for a semester like that. It's the equivalent of a business internship, but Mm -hmm. it's called the teaching newspaper program. And you, in order to get your degree at Northwestern, you have to go and work as a general assignment reporter at a daily newspaper somewhere. And I went to a small town called Marion, Indiana, Mm -hmm. and I worked on the Marion, Indiana Chronicle Tribune for a semester. And working on a small town daily newspaper, which is precisely where a fresh journalism graduate would start working, coming out of any journalism school, working there for a semester disabused me of my (laughs) fantasies about what it would be like to be a journalist. Yeah, yeah. Having to avoid infuriating the local business community with anything that you might write. um, Yeah having uh, an internal hierarchy within the newspaper that had its own agenda for dis- for what would be covered and why and all of the national news just being received by wire from the chain that had just bought your newspaper yeah. and so you had no flexibility about what you would be writing about on a national level like that that change, my graduating from journalism school in 1984 corresponded with the beginning of the sort of uh, 
homogenization of, of journalism, which was echoed again in radio stations being bought up. You know, all the small newspapers were bought up by Gannett. You know, all the small town newspapers were bought up by Gannett. So it sort of homogenized all their coverage and their behavior. Then all the radio stations were bought up by various aggregators. And then you would hear too, I mean, and I had friends at the time who were writing jokes, just a little side gig. They were writing jokes for DJs. And then that same joke would be told in 12 different cities. Yeah. You know, some whatever joke about Madonna and Sean Penn dating or whatever, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's the same kind of, there's no geographic specificity to anything. It's just, there's different containers that hold the same information that's plopped in there every morning. Yeah. And that started with newspapers in the late seventies, early eighties that, that yeah. began with Gannett buying up all of the local newspapers and, and, and sort of consolidating everything. Um, there's a, a guy that works here at Electrical Audio named John Sampaolo, who got a broadcasting degree and, and started working in radio in the 90s. And he was an on-air personality. He was a DJ. Played, you know, he had his show, and he was at, on a local radio station in Springfield, Missouri. Um, and then the station got bought, and, and they started automating the programming, and he was still on air a little bit, but his... You know, his title was changed and he was no longer an on-air personality. He was, you know, um, part of the pr broadcast production team or whatever. And then eventually things got so automated and so regimented that they were just streaming content that was being presented to them. And his title working for that radio station had was reduced to person in building. <laughs> What a dream come true. I've always wanted to be a person in a building. Yeah. So, you know, you grow wow. up listening to. You know, so that was on his tax like, forms? Person, yeah, person in building? In building. <laughs> Incredible. That's great. So anyway, so like uh, that kind of homogenization and the re like removal of the, the personal element of journalism which is what attracted me to journalism in the first place. All that early 20th century stuff where like there was, you know, and even at, even when I was a, 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 you know, a teenager, like Mike Royko's column was syndicated and Mike Royko was a really engaging writer and he wrote yeah. about Chicago stuff. Like, and unafraid to shitster too. And I'd never been to Chicago. I didn't know anything about Chicago, but then I was re reading about Slats Grobnik or whatever. And like I, and the, 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 the realization that there are these like conflicts and these, uh, and these, like the, the class divide survives, you know, any, uh, geographical relocation or whatever, like uh, that sort of stuff. It, it appealed to me to be in that world. Like it, I, I wanted to be in that world. I wanted to, to be part of that, like uh, journalistic world where there were identities of the people who were writing and they expressed themselves. But while they were doing it, what they were doing was getting to something deeper. Anyway, working for a daily newspaper for even a short period disabused me of that as a notion. And I, I gave up on the idea before I'd even graduated. I gave up on the idea of ever being a journalist. I was writing here and there for fanzines and stuff like nothing of substance, but yeah, you know, to, to amuse myself and also to, to extend my participation in the music scene. Like I, I wanted to do more things in the music scene and that, that was another avenue. Like the fanzines were a really important 
the pre-internet, the fanzines were a really important way to, for, um, people to communicate with people around the world. And we booked my, you know, my band booked tours based on things that were written in a fanzine about a show at a club in a town that was on the way. So we would go to the yellow pages for that city and find the phone number for that club and, you know, ring it at all hours of the day until we yeah, got an yeah. answer. And then we could book a show at that club that we'd heard about from this fanzine. Yeah. And then we had another gig on the tour, you know, yeah. like that, that was a really important part of the network of communication that existed pre-internet was this, all this super informal stuff. Yeah. And every time you'd run into another person in a band, like, you know, there's a, a, a band would come here from some place that we hadn't been yet. Like a band would come up here from Kansas or Missouri or Indiana or whatever, and they'd have contacts for people farther downstate than we did. So we'd share the people that we knew in Minneapolis and Milwaukee and Madison, like, oh, here, here's the guy that books shows in Madison. You should, you know, you can call this guy, you you can call this guy in Minneapolis, you can call this guy in Milwaukee. And they would say, okay, well, if you need a show in Bloomington, you can call this guy and show in Indianapolis, you can call this guy. Yeah. And a show in Marion, you don't want to go to Marion, it's a shitty little town. You know, like (laughs) things like that. Like all, all of that was super important. And just being willing to participate and share information made you a, a, a credible and good person in that scene. And my peer group, my, the people that I surrounded myself with were all people like that, all people who were, you know, giving of information and trying to make everything easier for everybody. I'm Phoebe Judge, host of the podcast, This Is Love. Stories about love and all of the surprising forms it can take. Like a man who finds a baby on a subway platform. A woman who spends most of her time alone until a fox starts coming around. And in one of my favorite episodes, we meet a man who forgot his wife and had to get to know her and fall in love all over again. Listen to new episodes of This Is Love wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm John Lovett, host of Love It or Leave It. Every week, I'm joined live on stage by incredible guests to break down the biggest and dumbest stories in politics and pop culture. And now, because there's too much news for just one show, join me and my friends, also known as beloved producers who have to be there, every Tuesday for a rundown of the latest headlines to help get you through another flawless week in our perfect society. Listen to episodes of Love It or Leave It wherever you get your podcasts or catch the funniest moments on the Love It or Leave It YouTube channel. Can't you tell my love's a grow? There is, there is a component to, you know, like when we were kind of comparing, you know, music versus kind of, you know, like being somebody in comedy in Chicago, being somebody in music in Chicago. There is something about music that's, uh, that it, there is the actual doing of it, which doesn't need anybody at listening. There's just, you know, you can get lost in the music. It's hard to tell jokes to a forest. Right. You know, yeah. Um, but you can play music, and and it, you know, especially with a band, you can just get lost in it. You don't need an audience, but there has to be some component of getting on stage in front of people that captured you. And was that a surprise? Did you know that was there? Or I mean, and how did it feel when you started playing for a live crowd? This is one of the weirdest things about my personality. If I can evaluate my personality from the from inside it. 
please do. I've never for a moment, not once in my life, felt a moment of trepidation about walking out on stage and playing a song, singing, do, do, like doing whatever in front of other people. Like the, the, the notion of stage fright has no resonance with me. Like I just wow. do not give a shit. Like and I never feel, has. Like not the slightest bit. It's never, it doesn't impress me. Like I, we, my, my bands have played shows for 10 people. And we have played shows for 40,000 people. And the effect of me going out in front of a microphone and doing what I have to do is exactly the same. And I try, I try pretty hard not to be impressed by any of it just because I feel like that would prevent me from paying attention to my job at the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I've, I, we've done great gigs in front of three people Yeah, and we've shit the bed in front of 10,000, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, you I, should do the I don't opposite. Show, you should do just my advice. Do the opposite. But I also, I also feel like it, like at a big gig, what's what's notorious about it is that it's big. That there's a lot of people there and there's a lot of money on the line, right? Yeah. I don't give a shit about that. That's not the yeah. part that matters to me. Like the the first ten people in front, like I'm probably having the gig for them. I'm probably having the gig with them. Like we're having a, a, a gig me and the the first hundred people up by the stage we're the ones who are actually at the show everybody else is like they're in a room yeah i guess they're watching but they're not have they're not they're not at the gig really and i feel like the small club environment like a couple hundred people is about the peak of where you can get the whole room involved in the gig and where everybody on the same mania and it's and and that's that's the best for me that's where like my eyes roll back in my head and everything goes white. And I feel like like, this is the greatest thing that I get to do in my life, you know? Yeah. But it's, um, yeah, I've just never like the idea of an audience is kind of weird to me. Like uh, the band I'm in right now, shellac, like it's an, what we're doing is for us. We write the songs for our, to amuse ourselves or to, to keep our ourselves engaged. I guess amuse is kind of a dismissive term, but, we're doing it for our benefit. We want to yeah. be in the band. I want to play with Bob and Todd. Like, and we're doing these songs because these songs excite us and because playing this music is great, right? You're in a band because being in a band is great. We're not, you're not doing it for external reasons. And when you're doing it in front of other people, there are other people involved in that moment and it can amplify the moment and it can get like, you know, more exciting to a degree. Yeah. But we're not doing it for them. Yeah. Right? That's the difference between a, a thing like music, which is a, can be a, a, a purely creative pursuit and something that is more of a purely performance art. Like what, what you do for a living requires an audience. Yeah. What I, I, I'm perfectly content for the three of us in the band to be in Bob's basement rehearsing and hit, hit a moment. Like that's, that gives me as big of a, of a, a charge as doing it in front of 10,000 people. Like yeah, the in front of 10,000 people just means more people got to see the cool moment, but I don't really care about that. Having the cool moment is what matters. I, I, it's, I mean, there's just, there's lots of things you're saying that resonate with me, but just in a different category. And like for the, all the years doing the Conan show, like, and people don't understand. Like, I didn't. I came from improv. I didn't come from stand up, and 
like I've told, I, and I've tried stand up and I said, I don't like being on stage alone. And when people would say, you know, like, don't, don't you miss a studio audience? I would say, no, I would, cause yeah. I never played for them anyway. When I would, what would make me the most proud is when I could see a cameraman behind a camera <laughs> with his headset on shaking because something I said made him laugh. And that, and, and that like came over too from working, starting in student films and working on film sets. I like this little team. I like this little band and I'm going to perform for them. And I, and I'm, when I say band, I didn't even mean it as a musical thing. Like, yeah. you know, I like this little touring group of weirdos and I'm going to play for them. And if other people are watching, that's cool, but yeah. I'm playing for them. You know, I think, I think what you've described, the improv scene in Chicago, the, like the way that like a group of people will, will name their team and then their team will like stick together and, and do a bunch of do, do shows or do workshops or whatever, or play together. Like that's as close as someone in the comedy world can get to the sensation of being in a band and, and to, to have like a working group that does, that is improvising stuff. That's coming up with ideas that are, they're bouncing ideas off of each other. Like any, a given moment, any one of them can be like the lead thought any one of those people can be driving the scene and, you know, everybody else is there to, to make sure that it keeps going, you know, at, like that's about as close as, a, as some in comedy can get to the sensation of being in a band yes. where you're all you know, playing on a group or whatever. And my, my wife, Heather Winna, who, who, you know, is the managed the second city for many years. Oh, right. And, and her and our circle of friends in, includes an enormous number of improvisers and people in comedy and theater in Chicago. So I've gotten to see all of these people in social moments, like sparring with each other and being funny. And it's true that like for like, if Dave Pasquese makes TJ Jagodowski bust up laughing, like that's a bigger hit yes. than Oh, having a show picked up or whatever, like there, mm -hmm. the, there, there is a thing where it's an inside, it, it's inside baseball with comedy. And there are, there are like these legendary bits in Chicago improv. I'm a poor correspondent in that regard, just because I don't know all the details, but I know that there are legendary, legendary bits that were derived from a, like a poorly attended show where there was nobody there, but the bit sort of yeah. went through the community and everybody heard about the bit and how this one, this one thing kind of blew up within this one group. And then that, that, that can sort of make the reputation of the person who came up with the bit. Yeah. Despite the fact that nobody saw it, nobody laughed at it. It wasn't part of a show. It was just, it was like those, that community values the inventiveness and the creativity and the, uh, of, of the process. Yeah. And when people can use that process to do something unique, it gets recognized even if it doesn't have an audience. And not only do they value the process, a part of the process is in the purest form is that you don't repeat yourself. Right. So it's basically, it's like saying you're in a band, but we don't ever play the same song, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's insane for just for commerce. <laughs> it's yeah. insane. You know, it's like, when I started out in television, I had all these, you know, like dumb young person ideas about like, I'm, I want to do a show where it's different all the time. 
Like where, you know, like every week you just follow a different character and it's different all the time, which I just now think like everyone's going to go, hey, dummy, nobody watches TV like that. They want to tune back in for the same, for more of the same. And it's like, oh, yeah, right. I guess that wouldn't work. And with improv, with pure improv, like that's really asking a lot of a, and, and Chicago does a wonderful job of being an audience for that. But you take it anywhere else. And it's like, wait, what? You're going to just do that once and then I'm going to come back next week and it's going to be all different and I'm going to have to like it as much? Yeah, I mean, it's not... I think that the critical thing about the improv community in Chicago is that it's not about the show. Like, the show, the thing that happened, the thing that they're selling tickets to, that's trash. Who cares? Absolutely. You're you're training the muscles of everyone who's working on it so that they can be fucking brilliant for the rest of their lives. Like, if you... It's incredible if you look at the roster of people who have have funneled through Second City, everybody from fucking yeah, Asner, Alan Arkin, like Mike Nichols, Elaine May, right? Like it, it's like the funniest people there have ever been. Yeah, like pretty much all of them at one point or another, like had to make up jokes on the spot and then forget about them instantly. You yeah. know, and that's and and I feel like that that that's valuable, like. As an audience member, I ha- being frank, watching improv can be a chore. Yes. Because you're seeing things fail. It apologizes for itself out the door. At the very beginning, yeah. it, it, there is the under... And I've been scolded by other improvisers for, for saying this. But there is the notion, hey, cut us some slack. We're making this shit up. <laughs> you know, and it's there. And God bless the audiences that enjoy that. So, But if you don't... If, you, if you're not willing... To, to say that what, what I'm watching is not a finished product. What I'm watching is people learning to be great at something. Yeah. You can gain, you can get an enormous amount of satisfaction from that. Yeah. And it's, it's the way like you, you can see people finding their legs under them and becoming expressive people in a mode that they hadn't previously done before. And then that riff comes around again and they get to do it again a little bit bigger and they get a little more confident in it. And then that riff comes around at the end of the show as a callback. And suddenly that guy's a fucking hero, right? Yeah. Like seeing that arc over and over again, you start to recognize the value of improv as a product, as a pure entertainment product. Like if you buy a ticket to an improv show, you know, you have my sympathies because it is most of the time (laughs) it's going to be like, if you're just going someplace to be amused, it's not that amusing a lot of the time. Yeah. You have to invest yourself in the idea that what you're seeing is more than a show. It's yes. more. And, and I, I do see the parallels between that and working stuff out within a band. When you're in a band, you have the, you have the, the, you know, mercifully, you get to do that in Bob's basement with no one, no one feeling disgruntled that they paid $10 to come see it. Right? Yeah. You, but you also have the option of doing it on stage. You have the option of doing it on stage in front of an audience. Yeah. But it's not the only form of the art. I, I we've been talking a, a while here, uh, so I got to move forward. I, I definitely wanted to touch on. You went from being a musician to being an engineer. I mean, you're yeah. a scientist, basically. Uh, sort of, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the depth of knowledge that you have about sound to go from journalist to punk rocker to engineer, 
is the is your dad in there? Do you think like like is there something? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I've been told I resemble my dad. Like I re- resemble my dad visually. If you look at a picture of my dad and you look at me, we look quite alike. Um, and but he always had this sort of grease monkey side to him. You know, a very like he was a you know he was a scratch bowler. He liked to you know hang out at, at the bar with at the Elks Club with the the veterans. You know, like he. Yeah, yeah. Not uh he was not a snobbish person or an effete person. Uh he happened to be brilliant. He was the first person in his family to get out of high school mm. and he went to Caltech and got multiple degrees, you know, multiple doctorates from Caltech. He was one of the first people to program computers uh, in Fortran. Was he older like were you when you were born was he kind of on the older side or No, I mean, he was born in 35 oh okay um so yeah so he he packed a lot into an early life then i mean he 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 did a lot because he was capable of a lot yeah and what i what i definitely see parallels like between like his appreciation of kind of working with his hands and and you know he worked on farms when he was a kid and uh like he, and he, he's, he sees that as valid work and, a, and sees that as a, you know, valid culture or whatever. Um, but he also was academically rigorous and technically minded and like, uh, and those, those two things also form aspects of my personality. Um, we didn't get along particularly. He was a pretty straight laced guy, pretty conservative guy. And, you know, at an early age, I kind of gravitated towards the freaks and the weirdos in the arts community and the music scene. And so we didn't share a lot of values in that, in that way, but, um, I respected his intelligence and, uh, and he respected my self-determination and that sort of thing. Yeah. Do you think that, because there is, there is a duality to the, you know, messiness of punk and the particulars of sound engineering and the science of it, you know, yeah, there's not the, like, you know, you don't hear about the Ramones caring much about, you, you know, whatever siblings yeah. or, or, you know, <laughs> or that they knew much about electronics. Yeah. Um, there's that. And the, the, the music scene was poorly rendered because of that. Um, the, you know, in the early days of the punk scene, punk music was not taken seriously. And so it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, like if it ever made it into the studio, whoever was responsible for the recording sort of often would take it on themselves to sort of smooth things over and like make the music less brash and less abrasive and less distorted. Um, not recognizing that that was where the excitement and where the power and the energy of the music came from was that it was unhinged and that it was, uh, messy, messy and overwhelming. And so the the sort of professional class of engineers you know with the best intentions i must say did a lot of damage to a lot of the early punk and underground recordings just because they didn't get it and yeah. they didn't take it seriously and they thought that it should try to fit into the pop music paradigm and i um i've described that behavior as like you see a grizzly bear like a you know incredible creature you know giant imposing powerful creature but you thought you know that you were going to going to be seeing some 
beautiful, elegant woman. Um, but instead you see this grizzly bear and instead of appreciating the grizzly bear as this incredible creature, you convince the grizzly bear to put on a dress and lipstick <laughs> and yeah, you, you haven't improved matters at all. Right. Like, although maybe you made a love I mean, connection. Well, I don't know, want to you judge. never know. But you know, the, you, most likely you've just irritated the grizzly bear <laughs> and you haven't gotten any closer to your ideal. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, but it's a practice that people would engage in regularly when music would come into the studio that they didn't deem worthy or that they didn't comprehend or they didn't, you know, they would try to fit it into this paradigm. They would try to put lipstick and a dress on it. And, um, when they're developed a, a, a sort of, um, a kind of role in the music scene for someone like me, who, like a, a local guy who would take the band seriously on their terms and try to do an efficient and re respectful recording of them. And there was a guy like me in every music scene, like in, in Southern California, there was spot who did all of the early SST records and he did the amendment man and the black flag and all the SST records. Um, in Minneapolis, there was a guy named Brian Paulson who was like in the band community there, um, in Madison, Wisconsin, there was Butch Vig, who was a, a guy in a band from Madison and he ended up, you know, and he recorded all the local bands, all the Midwestern bands. And so the, and in Chicago, there was a guy named Ian Burgess, who was kind of my, one of my mentors and, uh, eventually me, like, like there, there were guys like that all over Jack and Dino in Seattle, Wharton tears in New York. And like all of these people eventually that practice of being a guy in the scene who made recordings of bands on the scene that sort of solidified into this sort of a professional tier of recording engineers who were sympathetic to bands of that ilk. And I think that was a necessary development in the music scene in order for bands to start being properly re represented in their recordings by people who would take, go through the effort of reading the manual and figuring out how to do the thing, uh, at, to record a band. But meanwhile, being in the same headspace as the band and appreciating their aesthetic and doing things their way. And after that class of, of person developed, like after there developed a community of guys like me who could do that or, and would deign to do that. That's when you started to get really great records coming out of the punk scene and the underground, you know, and like the, those records sounded leagues better than the early tentative ones. And a lot of those bands identities were kind of formed by the process of making and releasing those records and getting them disseminated. Mm. Well, I've kept you long enough. It's time to move on to the other part of the program, which is, well, the, the second one is, um, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Uh, more of the same? You got anything, you know? Well, I mean, I'm old enough You finally now. want that number one single? Is that really? Not, yeah, I don't really give a shit about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm old enough now that I'm, I'm sort of actively contemplating the end of my professional working life. Like I, I just turned 61 this year. So that, that's very old, uh, you know, on, in, on any metric, 61 is old, right? So I, I am, I have to contemplate the ending of my professional career. 
Do you really though? I mean, why? I mean, well, okay. I mean, Al Schmidt, for example, who's one of my heroes was actively recording as an engineer into his nineties, you know, finally, and when he finally died, he was still working when he died. Right. And I, I admire him tremendously. Like he, he worked on all manner of records, like everything from like breathtaking, brilliant records to just pure shit like whatever walked in the door he worked yeah he fly himself to it i admire that aspect of him tremendously and uh and you know in a in a sense i've kind of modeled my career in as an engineer after him like i i want to be the guy who's just always there always doing a good job you know doesn't make it about himself like i'm just doing it right yeah and i'm happy to keep doing that but I'm conscious of a couple of things. Like one, when I resemble my dad in a lot of ways, we're related for one. And it, it, around my age, his hearing started to go. Oh. And I haven't noticed yet and if, that my hearing has affected my professional capacity, but it, it, eventually it must, right? Like everybody yeah. loses hearing as they get old. So eventually I'm going to get to a point where I'm going to have to stop just purely for that reason, where it will be irresponsible for me to keep making records. So I'm going to yeah. have to, what I want to do is I want to, I want to create a, an off ramp so that I can do that gracefully so that I can end my career without embarrassing myself in the studio and making bad records for people. Uh, I still feel like I, like I know way more than I used to. I still feel like I'm making the best decisions in the studio that I can. And I feel like I'm make, making good records for everybody. And whenever I'm challenged on it, like whenever I'm called on to use my hearing acuteness, I feel like I can equip myself well with my hearing. Like I can still hear all the details that I need to hear. I can still work in all parts of the frequency spectrum. I still feel good about my hearing. So I'm not concerned at the moment, but I do have to prepare for it. So I have to be, and then I built this fucking studio, this massive fucking enterprise where that took all of my money and it's now everything I have is all tied up in the studio. So eventually I have to figure out Am I going to try to make it so that the studio can continue without me yeah, as a, as a, the breadwinner of the studio, for example, there's a crew of guys that work here who are the fucking salt of the earth. I would take a bullet for any of them and I would love them to ha- keep going in the studio long, you know, long after I'm no longer a figure, no longer valid as an engineer. I would love for them to keep make, cranking records out here. That would be great. But I don't know if I can viably do that. Like, uh, my wife and and I would love to just spend the the golden years or whatever, like with no obligations and no responsibilities. Like, I would love to just be able to hang out with my wife every day and yeah, play poker once in a while and go see a show once in a while. And, you know, make dinner every night. Like that sounds fucking amazing to me. So you know? you're you don't. Are you somebody like, you don't, you're not like one of those people, like I need to do this to continue, or is that a question? I enjoy the work, right? I, I'm very gratified by what I do for a living, but it's a job, right? I have to do it. I have to cover my mortgage. I have to pay, cover all the salaries. I have to, you know, pay for my wife's healthcare. And, and like, there is, there is an, an obligation for me to keep working, which is unrelated to my desire to work. I do have, I do and en- en- enjoy working. I I'm engaged by it. It works all the parts of my brain that are gratifying for, you know, the problem solving and the aesthetic parts of my brain are all stimulated by it. And I love doing it, but I have to do it for the moment. And I would love to find a way w- 
that I didn't have to do it where I could, you know, just relax with the wife and cats and, and make dinner every night. Like, yeah, I yeah. keep coming back to that, but that sounds like the, just like the perfect life. <laughs> hang out with my wife and cats. And then every night I'm like, what would you like for dinner? You know? Yeah. No, that's like the notion of retirement, like the pandemic, because I, I wasn't really do, you know, there was a good chunk there where I wasn't really doing anything, but I had yeah. an income and I was like, and after a while I was like, this is retirement. Yeah. I think I can do this. I, I, think, I, I think I'll I be would fine. Rush retirement. I would yeah. be like best ever at, <laughs> and you know, some people feel frustrated that they're not in the swing of things. Oh no, no, no. Yeah. yeah. No. Like I, I don't need to be in the swing of things. Yeah. You know? I like to watch it swing. Yeah. Well, what, what do you, uh, what's the point of it all? I mean, what, what do you think is like the biggest lesson that you've learned or the kind of thing that you would impart, uh, to people? So there is a conventional wisdom about how you must conduct yourself in, in order to, in order to, to persevere in any endeavor. And that conventional wisdom is received from people who people whose uh position of authority or whose self image of authority is is important to them so they will tell you how you should proceed because it's important to them to be kind of a sensei right? it's important to them to feel like they know this thing that they can impart to you right yeah i don't have that drive like i don't feel like it's important for me to teach other people things or to instruct other people. I tend not to be very critical of other people's career choices or the way they do things. Like I can see pitfalls and I'm happy to explain the pitfalls that I see, but everybody's going to work it out on their own, no matter what. Yeah. But to a young person wondering if they can do things in their own perverse manner and still be satisfied with them and still make a life out of it, I would say, I would say, Without question, you can do it. You, if the main thing is just to not quit. Like if you're in something and you're doing it and you're getting satisfaction from doing it, whether you're earning anything at the moment or not, if you keep doing it, then you get to keep doing it. No one can stop you. And that, that's the most important thing. And Again, you know, oh, that's easy for you to say, you, you know, you were successful by not stopping. Yeah. I was successful by not stopping, you know, like, yeah, I was, I, the first bands I was in were in the late seventies, late seventies. And I had a straight job and I worked as a, you know, doing music and engineering on the side. And I worked for a company that did fucking advertising images like I did that did photography and photo manipulation for advertising, which is like the worst people in the world. So I was working <laughs> doing, a, a, doing deceptive work for the worst people on earth. Yeah. Right. And I had to keep a straight job until the late eighties. Yeah. So it was like, the better part of 10 years before I could say that I was a recording engineer and musician as a, as a full time. Yeah. So for, and so if it takes a few years before you get any notice or any income from what you're doing, if you don't quit, 
you know, there's still the possibility that you will get to a point where you can make your living at it. I can't promise you that you will become well known and successful yeah and um, in capitalist terms and and famous in gen- general terms like that's unrealistic yeah but you get to keep doing it for sure you get to keep doing it yeah well and i think i think part of the work of it is learning to enjoy it in spite of all these you know all the things that are not are not happening those are going to stack up and if those are impeding your enjoyment of it you're not enjoying it and maybe you should stop doing it, you know, because the thing that I always hear and, and you talked about it a couple of times with the, well, it's easy for you to say, I mean, look at you, 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 you know, you've had it easy. Uh, you know, that to me, there's always a, a little bit of, of subtext there. There's like, well, you're talented. Like, well, you, you know, <laughs> like you had a, you had a facility for it, you know, an obvious facility for it. That was, that was acknowledged by the industry that you, that you're in. And, uh, you know, what if you don't have facility for it? Like, I don't know what to tell you. If you love it, you love it and you keep doing it. But, and, and if, and if not being successful at it gets in the way of you loving it, then maybe you got to stop. But also like people get hung up on this idea of either, you know, you're instantly good at something or you're not right. Yeah. And like it, I'm, I am personally, I'm gratified when I see people who have been working at it forever and then it, something clicks in the greater culture and other people come into sync of it, sync with it all of a sudden. Like I, I'm, I'm sure, you know, Abby McInerney and, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the, um, the, her show work in progress. Mm-hmm. Which, oh yeah. Yeah. Right. And she was a fixture on the improv community in the improv community. Like she would show up at, at all the shows and she was on teams and she would do, sh- you know, for a ve- quite a long time. And then as an adult, as a fully formed adult with years of practice under her belt, other people finally got it. She did this very personal show and other people finally got it. And she got some notoriety and some, and some attention and what she did that was special was that she didn't quit. She kept doing it. Right. Yeah. I, and that's, that's, that's the whole lesson is like, I can't promise you that you'll have a moment where other people will get what you're doing, but if it's valuable to you, obviously it has value, right? Because it means something to you. Yeah. And, and if you quit, then it's over. Right. And for some people be having it be over is a relief. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I just, want to make dinner for my wife and hang out with her and the cats. It's I want it to be over. Right. Yeah. And I believe me, I get it. I get that. I believe it. Believe me. But if you don't quit, the evidence is that you get to keep doing it. And every now and again, the rest of the culture will synchronize with you. And then you'll have a moment where you like, you know, where you gain traction with other people. Well, speaking of quitting, we have to quit this interview. It's been going on. It's been really awesome, though, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thanks uh, for having me. Sure, sure. I was happy to do it, and um, and it's it you know it's just been a great conversation, and I hope uh, that all of you enjoyed it out there. You better have, God damn it! I mean, we're not we're not we're not doing this for each other, you know. <laughs> Speaking of well, audiences, apparently everybody else is getting paid for this, is what I understand. <laughs> Like I'll, I'll send you, a, I don't know, a t-shirt or something. I, oh yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Can you can, do me a favor? Can you, can you sign it 
with someone else's more famous signature and then I'll put it on eBay. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. That's always like, I got, I did something with Jane Fonda and she gave me a Jane Fonda mugshot t-shirt, you know, that sort of clue oh, yeah, yeah, era yeah, 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 yeah. Jane Fonda mugshot. I was like, that is the coolest fucking shirt ever. And then she signed it. And it's like, I can't wear a Jane Fonda shirt with a <laughs> Jane Fonda signature, you know, anyhow. Well, thank you, Steve Albini. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me, Andy. Have a good day. And uh, thank all of you for listening. And we will be back next week with more of The Three Questions. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco production. It is produced by Sean Doherty and engineered by Rich Garcia. Additional engineering support by Eduardo Perez and Joanna Samuel. Executive produced by Nick Liao, Adam Sachs, and Jeff Ross. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, with assistance from Maddie Ogden. Research by Alyssa Grawl. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to The Three Questions with Andy Richter wherever you get your podcasts. And do you have a favorite question you always like to ask people? Let us know in the review section. Can't you tell my love's a-growing? Can't you feel it ain't showing? Oh, you must be a-knowing. I've got a big, big love. This has been a Team Coco production. <laughs>